Sony. Hello, Canada. Today's date is July 17th, 2022. Welcome to a special edition of Canadian Common Sense. It's an interview special. Our guest today is someone that you'll, you'll know well because he's been referred to on our show many times. Uh, he is, well, like us on Canadian Common Sense, a voice in the wilderness standing up for freedom and personal responsibility, one of the few. He has been a mainstream media personality, a political candidate, been a documentary filmmaker, now works with the independent media, and he's even written a best-selling Canadian book, which is what we're going to talk to him about today. So essentially he's at every job except for used car salesman, but we'll ask him that in the interview. Um, let's welcome to the show today, uh, Mr. Andrew Lawton. Mr. Lawton, welcome to Canadian Common Sense. Hey, it's good to be with you. Thanks very much for having me on today. Well, it's certainly uh, an honor to have you. Now, the, the book is called The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of three weeks that shook the world. Um, I actually promoted this book on the show a couple weeks ago. It's a great way to spend an afternoon. I read it in about four hours, and it was a good read, one of the books you can't put down, so uh, good job on the book. Thank you. You actually beat the uh, audiobook reader. The, uh, the audiobook just came out the other day and I was curious how long it would take and he, he read it I think in four hours and 55 minutes so oh. <laughs> you are uh, you're ahead of the audiobook reader so that may, makes you a speed reader I think well hey I'm good with that so uh <laughs> well it's nice to know that the timing at least is fairly close so so now we were looking at setting this interview up a week or so ago you were in Europe so before we start talking about the book uh how was the flight home? How did you manage Pearson Airport? How was the arrive can up? Uh, these are some questions that Canadians have been, well, struggling with. Yeah, I mean, the Arrive Can app is unfortunate because I, I've been talking about this since the thing was introduced, and it was ostensibly a COVID thing. And I, and I always knew, not because I, I'm particularly smart, but just because I, I know the nature of government, that it was never going to be just about COVID. And you see now the government pivoting this thing into something that is really part of the standard CBSA screening process that has nothing to do with COVID restrictions. So I've, I've done the Arrive Camp thing I, a few times now. I'm somewhat of an expert at it, although it's sad that this is what Canadians need to have expertise in. There was a video that went viral just the other day of an 86-year-old who was threatened with thousands of thousands of dollars of fines because he doesn't have a cell phone and didn't know how he could do Arrive Camp before going through the border. And uh, this whole thing that you're supposed to have as a Canadian, guaranteed entry into your own country, is increasingly conditional. But I will say, I mean, just as far as my experience goes, the absurdity of it was fascinating because we, we get in and the airline has, of course, uh, told everyone that, oh, yes, we're doing this metering thing and we have to let everyone off the plane in various stages. And I think they said they were going to let 50 people off every five minutes or every 10 minutes. And as it so happened, I was in one of the early groups because I had a connection. So they let me get off pretty early. And they, did, they announced all of this. Then I get down to the customs hall. And literally not one single person in there. Like literally not a soul except for the people working there. And they looked bored to death. So I was like, why are we going through the charade when we don't even have the people in the customs hall that are supposed to be warranting it? So I, I think now we've just ingrained in the process the fact that it's supposed to be unpleasant and the circumstances <laughs> don't even matter all that much. Oh, goodness. So it was actually a fairly, like as far as getting through the airport itself, you had a fairly easy time? 
Yeah, I, I mean, I was held up on the tarmac for, I think, like 30, 40 minutes. But once they let me off the plane, it was it was fine. I got off easy. Oh, good. Well, that's encouraging. And um, how was the arrive can app itself? Did any, any troubles with it crashing on you? No, I, I, no I've, I've had pretty good luck with it so far. And, and like I said, I mean, I, I'm resentful and I'm like sneering under my breath every time I, I do the whole thing. But I, I also realize that I'm of an age where, you know, apps and technology are a lot easier to me than they are to other people. And I, there are people that have had some very significant challenges with this. And, and like I mentioned, that 86-year-old guy, there are others as well of people that have ended up either being threatened with fines or at the very least just going through a tremendously burdensome process when they get to a border, all because of this app that really is not doing anything at this point. Well, and I, and I love the, how sympathetic the federal government was when it just said, well, if you don't have a cell phone, just find somebody who does. <laughs> I thought, well, that, that's, that's yeah, very considerate. Then, and find a printer on vacation. Like, yeah. th- this is the whole thing is that now it used to be that you had to find a test when you're in a foreign country because you needed the test to get back into Canada. And then they dropped the testing, and now you just need to run around wherever you are looking for a printer. So if you're in Bangladesh, you got to find the 24-hour Internet cafe so you can print off your ArriveCan <laughs> app and, and go through the process before you get home. But it, it's making every difficult and the government doesn't even seem to care all that much they, they, that seems to be the design actually well yeah and like we had talked about on our show earlier that uh, that's they, they seem to plan to uh, keep it forever they seem to think it's a, an efficient way to go and well Lewis my co-host he when he traveled I think it was last year it took him three days because the app kept crashing on him to get all of his information and his family's information uploaded and I mean, we just heard their story recently. I believe their couple was from Montreal who uh, the app crashed and they ended up getting sent to quarantine because they couldn't show all their information. It's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a typical wow. government app, right? Or typical government <laughs> solution. It's, it's, it's clunky, it's awkward. Yeah, from the and... people that brought you the Phoenix Pay system, now this new <laughs> app that your ability to travel and escape 14 days of quarantine depends on. Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for that. I'm glad you're having an easy time with the RiveCam. That, that's good because you travel a lot. So, All right. So let's move on. Yeah, and, and that's the big challenge is that for me, it's like you, you learn how to get around it. The people that travel once or twice, they're the ones who are effectively getting completely hosed by everything that's going on right now. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm certainly going to be calling you and my wife and I go to Mexico next because we haven't traveled okay. since COVID. So <laughs> There's a new market here. It can be the ArriveCan consultant. You call me <laughs> you up and I don't know, whatever the <laughs> hourly rate is, uh, you know, $100 a, an hour and I'll walk you through the process. You're giving me the idea now. Thank hey. you. I'll, I'll cut you in. Oh, thanks. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so other than uh, ArriveCan Consultant, uh, let's learn a little bit about Andrew Lawton. Uh, you're from London, Ontario, and we've talked a bit about some of the work you've done. Born and raised in southern Ontario? Or? No, I was actually born in Trenton, Ontario. My father is a uh, veteran of the Canadian Armed Forces, and he was stationed there. So I was born there, but moved to London at a, a pretty young age. I think I was around two years old or so. And I've, I, I end up, I, I've moved elsewhere for little bits of in periods, but I've always uh, kept coming back to London. It's been my home for most of my life now. Oh, excellent. So when I first came across you, you were on Chorus Radio, and I believe you were the London affiliate. And I, I think I actually heard you filling in for Danielle Smith as the first time I actually heard your voice on the radio. So um, have you always been a media man? 
I, I, I don't, I don't like the word always. Uh, my, <laughs> my roundabout way into media is that I had at a, a relatively young age a, a stroke, and I was uh, not able to do a lot of the things that I was doing at the time, and I ended up being strung up in a hospital for quite a while and at home for quite a while, and I, I started blogging. And I had been blogging in the past and, you know, had enjoyed doing it and kept doing a bit more of it and then eventually started doing a podcast. And this was around the time of 2010 where podcast demand was growing, but supply hadn't yet caught up. So everyone wanted to listen to podcasts, but no one was producing them. So there was a big opportunity there to, to get into the market, especially in Canadian conservative politics. And I ended up doing a lot with it, not just in Canada, also in the United States. We had people on the show like Ann Coulter and Andrew Breitbart and Mark Stein and all of these people that uh, by coming on the show, they, they conferred legitimacy to the podcast and, and ended up doing a lot of really good stuff that I, I'm still proud of. And then uh, this got me on the radar of, of traditional media where I ended up doing, as you mentioned, a show in, in London, Ontario with Chorus. And I also was guest hosting nationally for Roy Green and in Toronto and in Calgary and Edmonton and all these other folks and it's it's amazing how it's all come full circle back to doing a podcast and working in new media again yeah well actually it's just nice to have you back on the the right side of the equation i've uh i've learned to distrust the mainstream media especially these last few years so uh so yeah it's good to have you working in independent media so let's talk about this book of yours um first of all you're on the canadian bestsellers list what qualifies you as a Canadian bestseller as far as the book sales go? I'm assuming selling well. I, I don't oh. actually know what's going on behind the curtain there. I, I know that when before we even launch, we shot up to, I think, like number two on the Amazon bestseller list and stayed there for a couple of weeks. And I couldn't quite crack number one because there's that picture book about Justin Trudeau that was at number one, and I, I couldn't quite get over the picture book, but I did very well. And, and then the book came out officially on June 24th, and but there have been some issues getting it just because there has been a demand. So they, the publisher has been printing more and more and trying to uh, get caught up. And, and I was very, very honored that this week I was in both the Toronto Star and the Globe and Mail bestseller list in the number one spot for nonfiction, which is quite a humbling, uh, quite a humbling uh, development for for my first book. So, I mean, what that translates into in, in terms of the actual number of books sold, I have no idea, but it's uh, more than all of the other ones on the list, apparently. Well, that's great, and uh, that's really got to hurt the feelings of some folks at the Toronto Star and Globe and Mail to see you at the top of their <laughs> list. So. <laughs> yeah, I am. I imagine the books editor just like having to like really like almost like she was working against a Ouija board, like not wanting to actually <laughs> type out my name and my book title in that number one spot before they went to print. But uh, they did it, and uh, to their credit, they uh, gave even a nice little blurb about the book, uh, describing without criticism what it was about and, and what I was about. So I am very glad. And again, I mean, how many of the uh, book section readers of the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star will rush out to buy it? I have no idea, but it was uh, it was a nice little endorsement of of the book there to see it there yep that's true so i got my copy by pre-ordering with sutherland house that's the publisher uh how else do we get get a hold of your book it depends where you are. I mean, I, I would always say if your local bookstore is carrying it, you can go there and, and get it right away. Uh, the most convenient way for a lot of people is to get it on Amazon, where you can find it by looking up The Freedom Convoy, the inside story of Three Weeks That Shook the World. And as you mentioned there, SutherlandHouseBooks.com, which is the publisher, has it directly uh, from their website as well. 
Okay, excellent. So why write the book? Why was why was there a need for uh, for this kind of explanation? There's a bit of a funny story to that, if, if you'll indulge me here, because I, I covered the convoy. Uh, well, I covered it before it even got to Ottawa, because I was, I was following along with this story that was happening and this thing, this big amorphous mass that was moving towards Ottawa. And it was clear that something big was happening as these truckers were, were going there. And when it went to Ottawa, I said, yeah, I'm going to go there. I got to get a, get up to Ottawa. I got to cover this. So I went to Ottawa and stayed there for a couple of days and, and then went back home. Uh, because, again, at the time, they had talked about staying until the mandates were gone, but no one really knew at the beginning how long this thing was going to end up lasting and then a couple of weeks later i went back and and this ended up being the last weekend of the convoy's time in ottawa when the emergencies act was invoked and the police came in and the i was pepper sprayed the horseback officers trampled a woman all that stuff happened and one of the things that i i had was really trying to dig into there was how this group, this ragtag group, had managed to bring the city to its knees for so long. And there was a a story below the surface that not a lot of people saw, which was that they had this sprawling network of so-called command centers across Ottawa hotels. They had catering division, millions of dollars in fundraising, all of the stuff that was happening that people didn't really know about or or didn't entirely understand. And there was a friend of mine that I I kept saying, you know, someone's got to write a book. I want to read a book. I want to read the book about this. And eventually he told me just to shut up and write it myself. So I did. And, you know, I'm actually very happy that I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And and that was something that really motivated me because I knew there was a story here. And I spent, you know, all the time, I mean, I know it's been an aggressive timeline, but I spent all the time after the convoy had wrapped up in Ottawa doing interviews with key participants, doing research, going back over my own notes from covering this on the ground, and really trying to tell the story of the convoy in a way that no journalist had before in Canada. Well, you certainly did that. I mean, uh, if you listen to the CBC or watch the CBC, then you know it was the Nazi convoy. If you follow Evan (laughs) Solomon, you know that it was a white supremacist convoy set to overthrow the government in Canada. So, um, yeah, you've done good work by actually giving, well, what I can say is a pretty honest explanation of what happened. Um, like you, uh, our coverage of that, that show, of that whole convoy, we just went to YouTube. We went to Rupert Supermania, who was, who did great work for the National Post, and uh, she's now with you, I understand. And um, we actually got to find out from actual people that this was what was going on. It wasn't this, uh, this, you know, small fringe minority with unacceptable views, as Justin Trudeau would tell us. So I really appreciate that you did write the book. Now, um, let's get this out of the way right off the bat. I want to strangle Evan Solomon every single time he talks about Pat King, Canada Unity, the organizers of the convoy, the whole manifesto and stuff. Was Pat King key organizer to this convoy? He was key, but he wasn't an organizer. And, and I, I try to deal with this head on because the Pat King connection was one of the biggest things that the media used to undermine this because right. the guy has said some very un- unsavory things. They would hold him up as being the face of this, the leader of this. And I really do in the book trace the convoy back to its origins. And there's no way you can say that Pat King wasn't in at the very ground level. He used his large audience to promote the convoy. He was a booster of the convoy. He was there from Alberta to Ottawa. He followed it along. So he was key in getting it off the ground by promoting it, but he was never an organizer. And I think this is the important distinction. And and more importantly, 
by the time you got to Ottawa, he had little to no legitimacy with anyone other than his own following, which he had beforehand. He didn't have access to the money. He wasn't calling the shots. And he had been asked to leave by the people in the convoy that most people would look to as the organizers, people like Tamara Leach and, and Chris Barber. So uh, was he a key organizer? He was key, but he wasn't an organizer. I'm happy with that. I, uh, I've tried to suggest to tell like, some listeners to our show have emailed and said, you know, hey, what did he have to do with it? And I kept saying essentially, well, I didn't say it as well as you, but it is said like he is not an organizer no matter how much, uh, you know, Evan Solomon wants him to be. So as you say, they could delegitimize the, the convoy and they tried that in several ways. Um, how many Nazi flags, Confederate flags did you see when you were actually on the streets in Ottawa? Well, personally, zero. <laughs> and, and this was the, the thing that I found interesting. So that first weekend, I, I was walking around and I was seeing people just having a good time and people were having a party and hugging each other and befriending each other and singing and dancing. And it wasn't until I got back to my, because it was like minus 20 degrees or whatever. It wasn't until I got back to my hotel to, I think, like recharge my phone and warm my hands or whatever, that I logged online and learned from the internet that this was like some white supremacist, neo-Nazi, confederacy hate fest that I had been walking through and, and hadn't realized. And uh, the reality is there was one swastika flag. Now, I would say that one is too many. I'm not excusing it by virtue of it being a small number, but I will say that it was not at all representative of the convoy it, itself. And, and the confederate flag, even more so, because if you watch the video where the guy who was fully masked was walking through with a Confederate flag, the people in the crowd actually heckled him. The people in the crowd chased him out because they wanted nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the flag. And that was exactly what I'm talking about here when I point out in the book the media malfeasance. They talk about the guy being there. They don't talk about how he was given the bums rush by everyone else there. Well, yeah, and we've seen that and also the... The Nazi flag, I think there was a, the gentleman was trying to protest, suggesting that the Trudeau government were acting like Nazis. And, of course, that was completely spun out of, out of, out of control. And from what I saw, this, kind of, this fellow with the Nazi flag was sort of way off in the fringes and not really kind of central to where the protesters were. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and to, I, I don't actually know what the motivations were. I've, I've heard the theory you just mentioned that it was a protest against Trudeau. I, I've also heard that maybe he was a Nazi himself, or maybe it was an instigator, because what's the easiest way to delegitimize a movement? You walk around with a Nazi flag in there. But the reality is, even if this guy was a, a bona fide Nazi, he was not representative of the convoy. And, and there's a reason that I think he was out in the outskirts of the area, because he knows that the people there wouldn't have flown for that in, in the least. So it was, again, another one of these examples where the story on the ground vastly diverged from the story that people were getting through the media. And, and trying to demystify that disconnect was a big part of, of why I wrote the book. Right. And so um, in the book, you do actually name some of the people who were the key organizers. Now, the names Chris Barber, Tamara Leach, um, Ben Dichter, immediately come to mind. Was there anybody else who was really key in sort of bringing this all together? 
So I'll, I'll say yes in the sense that there were a lot of people that were on the more prominent end of it. Uh, Tom Morazzo played a very key role, especially when it came to the negotiations with the city of Ottawa and police. Uh, Bridget Belton as well. She wasn't as prominent as the others, but I would say without her, this thing wouldn't have existed in the first place. And, and I talk about her story in the first chapter of the book. And there were other people, I mean, the lawyers that came in from Alberta, Eva Chipiuk and Keith Wilson, they played very key roles in this. But I, I would also be very cautious about putting all of the organizational cachet on those people, because the whole nature of this is that it was a grassroots movement. And the people whose names we all know were certainly leaders and they had very important roles to play. And they were moral leaders more than they were, you know, practical, uh, you know, chess masters of, of this all. But it was the people who showed up in the trucks and to support the truckers who were the real backbone of the convoy. And a lot of those people, we will never know their names. They were there. And I've had people that have come to me that have said, yeah, you actually mentioned me in your book. And I, I didn't mention them by name because I didn't know their name. It was, oh, I saw a person with this sign or, oh, I saw a guy do this or I, I heard a woman say this. And people have said, yeah, that, that was me. And that was, I think, the real magic of this, is that the convoy was not defined by the people at the top. It was defined by the people, I don't even want to say at the bottom, but the people at the grassroots level. Oh, that's fair enough. So when you uh, you first went to Ottawa the, the, on your first trip, were you expecting to see this uh, this winter festival, or were you expecting to see an actual bunch of angry white dudes yelling at Trudeau? Well, I knew it wasn't going to be angry because I, I saw that people were, and I myself, were, were being filled with a level of hope that had been missing in Canada for the two years leading up to this. So I, I thought it was going to be positive. But if I'm being perfectly candid with you, I didn't know what I was going to see. I, I didn't know when I got to Ottawa what it was going to look like. There was no agenda. There was no program. Internally, people had some of these things, but all of them just got completely thrown away. And I, I was just looking at not being a logistics guy for, for trucks. I was like, I, I don't even know if all of these trucks are going to fit downtown. So anything that anyone were to say about, oh, we're going to start this thing at noon, I just wouldn't have believed. And, and I ended up being right because trucks just kept showing up and showing up and showing up. And I, I didn't know what it was going to look like, but I, I would say that I didn't know it was going to be as jubilant. I, I mean, some of the things that convoy supporters still talk about, they're, they're almost punchlines in a way. Things like the bouncy castle and the hot tub and the saunas and the pig roast and all of these things. But I, I guess the one thing I would point out is that these were not anomalies. These were the norm. They, these were really the essence of the convoy. Yeah, well, the the bouncy councils probably got more media than anything else, and I think that was actually great. When the, I'm not sure if it was your news outlet or another one who had talked about uh, how the police are coming in to to break down the bouncy castle protest, and uh, I think the bouncy castle became as much a symbol as anything else uh, later on in the convoy. So, um, how many people, when protesters do you think were actually in downtown Ottawa? I know Justin Trudeau had first tried to dismiss it as about a dozen trucks. Um, I heard numbers anywhere from 10,000 up to 100,000. How many do you expect were actually there? Uh, it's tough to say. I, I mean, trucks, there were probably hundreds, if not, you know, maybe over a thousand that were in Ottawa 
Uh, by the end of it, it was in the hundreds, certainly. At the beginning, it, it's tough to say because a lot of the ones that couldn't actually get in to the city, they just kept driving around. They'd go to the outskirts. So even the organizers, I would say, and I interviewed them at the time and even after, they were not giving accurate numbers. Or they weren't, they weren't even trying to give numbers because they knew how difficult it was to, to give an accurate number. But what I will say is that there, was, there were layers of it. There were the people in the trucks. There were the people that came just to support them on the streets by protesting. And then there were the people cheering them on by home. And, and this was really the convoy coalition that a lot of people didn't see, the people that couldn't make it to Ottawa, that have never seen a truck in their life, but still resonated with some part of this protest and, and of this movement. And I, I don't know, I mean, we're probably in the millions if you consider all the people around the world that staged their own copycat demonstration, even what's happening in the Netherlands now. You've got farmers that are protesting. A lot of people are saying this is inspired by what the truckers in Canada did back in January and February. Oh, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I like when you said talked about giving Canadians hope. I mean, that was the one thing even I felt when the convoy started. Uh, my wife sitting here, she'll probably start laughing when uh, she we were talking about when it first started to roll, and I actually broke into tears and said, I've never been more proud to be part of the trucking family. And then uh, when I interviewed James Topp, he had said that he was actually inspired by the Freedom Convoy to begin his march. So you're probably right. There probably is in the millions. It was... Uh, well, I mean, and like you say, it's still inspiring as far as the uh, the Netherlands is concerned. So, um, you know, you have uh, talk a lot in your book about supplying the convoy. I mean, there was always talk of how the police were going to cut off fuel and they were going to be cutting off food and how these truckers were stealing food from homeless shelters. And you debunk all of that really, really well in the book. So, so how um, how were they getting fuel? Well, it was actually quite an interesting story. One of the, the people I interviewed, and he, he's not named uh, because he, he, he was, again, not one of these people that, that was really well-known, but uh, someone who really took on the role of being the head of fuel distribution. And, and I won't regale you with all the details now. I'll, I'll tell people that, that it is in the book in, in a lot of detail, yeah. though. And, and that's just the way they had this network that would bring these tankers in on a schedule. And they were bringing, I, I forget the numbers, but large amounts of diesel on a regular regular basis, I think two shipments a day, and from there they would then transfer it into slip trucks and go around and they have these fuel runs and they would do all this with the sole purpose of keeping those trucks running. Uh, but when police started going in and seizing it, because they set up this fuel depot at a place just outside of downtown, uh, you know, everyone, the, the police, the government thought, okay, this is it, there's no way that they can keep going. And what happened the next day is people just started showing up with diesel. They started showing up with diesel, with jerry cans full of it, with empty jerry cans to throw the police off. <laughs> and it was one of the big examples of how any time government or law enforcement tried to go after something, whether it was food, whether it was money, whether it was diesel, they ended up getting more of it because that groundswell of people, that grassroots movement of people came and provided it. Yeah, and I even saw in uh, a lot of the YouTube videos that there was a surplus of food. In fact, there was there was no shortage of food being offered to people. Yeah, they were donating by. to the shelters because they just couldn't <laughs> eat all of it if they wanted to. Yeah, so that's fantastic. Speaking of of the grassroots, so um, so let's move on. So you went to Ottawa, you came back, and when you came back to Ottawa the second time, that was pretty much when the emergency act was declared. Correct. 
Yeah, and, and I had had colleagues of mine with True North that were in Ottawa that were covering it between then, and it was fairly quiet for the most part. You'd have these little pop-ups of activity, these little blizzards of activity, but, but things were fairly quiet, and it seemed like they were in it for the long haul. So when I went back, we, we knew that police were going to try to move in, but it, we didn't know how imminent it would be and how quickly they'd be able to do it. They had effectively cleared all the trucks within about 36 hours or so. Uh, so I went back and, and I wanted to write a series of, of articles that really delved into that organizational structure that I mentioned earlier and that we've been talking about. And, and as it ended up, I, I didn't have time to write that story because the police crackdown was imminent. Yeah, now this is very key to point out, and we pointed this out in our show, you pointed it out in your show as well, that the blockades at Windsor, for example, and at Coots were all taken down using existing legal powers, existing police powers. And the argument about uh, you know, trade being interrupted, well, border, cross-border trade was actually up in February over the, the previous year. So I don't buy that argument. So um, it was really hard to justify or even believe the, the Trudeau government's justification for using the Emergencies Act in the first place. Um, just, I'm just asking for your opinion here. When they declared it and uh, didn't want to give a, you know, a deadline as to when it would be revoked, um, do you think and they were hoping to go a lot longer than what they did? I think so, and and I think that their window was closing. The truckers were working with the city of Ottawa to mitigate the uh, strain on the remainder of the city, and they were trying to move all the trucks onto Wellington Street, and, and it, they were really getting very close to that. And I think that the federal government had already decided it wanted to invoke the Emergencies Act. The federal government wanted the crackdown because they wanted the powers that let them go after the money, which was really the, the big thing that they could only do with the Emergencies Act. And I think that what happened was they saw their window was closing and they needed to move at that exact moment. Otherwise, they would have had no excuse whatsoever. And, and as you mentioned, those blockades at the borders were already in the process of being dismantled. Most of them had already been dismantled with regular policing powers and but the government needed to go quickly enough that they could still point to those things as being the reason okay interesting so i'm now wondering aloud if uh, maybe that was why justin trudeau made it into a confidence motion to make damn sure that it was going to pass yeah, well, I think you're very right, because you had Liberal members of Parliament. I mean, one that springs to mind is Nathaniel Erskine-Smith from Toronto, who said, yeah, I don't like this, I want to vote against this, but oh, it's a confidence motion, I've got to vote with my party. Yeah, I, th I thought that was pretty weak uh, in myself, but yeah, it is what it is. So, uh, all right, so in the end, and I want to talk about one of the organizers after this, but do you think the convoy at least accomplished part of the goal? I mean, I realize it was there to, to end mandates federally, but when you look at all the provinces that very, very quickly started jettisoning their vaccine mandates, do you see the convoy as being a success? So this is the million-dollar question, and I include my own thoughts in the book, and I'll, I'll share them with you now. But I, I will qualify it by saying that I, I invite people truly to reach their own conclusions about this because they went in with the very specific set of goals, which was that they wanted an end to the vaccine passports, an end to the vaccine mandates. As we know, the federal mandates and restrictions – they outlived the convoy, and, and the trucker mandate is still in effect right now. So the very thing that really galvanized so many truckers to join this is, is still on the books, which is absolutely absurd, and it's unscientific. But there were very swift changes that happened at the provincial level, and also politically. We saw 
Quebec abandoned its tax on the unvaccinated. We saw provinces like Ontario, Alberta, Quebec, and Saskatchewan work very, very quickly to announce targeted reopening deadlines for ending their restrictions, which is something they hadn't been doing even in the days leading up to the convoy. And then Aaron O'Toole. Aaron O'Toole had refused to take a position on the trucker mandates and on the vaccine mandates during the election. Aaron O'Toole was ousted, and the new interim leader for the Conservatives, Candace Bergen, uh, was very much in support of the convoy and of the convoy's aim. So I think there was a significant political change that took place that the trucker convoy created, even if they didn't ultimately get their top-line goals immediately. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And to be fair, Aaron O'Toole took no position on anything you know, basically after winning the Conservative Party leadership. So I'm not surprised he didn't take a position on the convoy. But, uh, I mean, that's past news. I can't say I miss Aaron O'Toole. So we'll, I hope that the next uh, Conservative leader's got a bit more fortitude as far as taking a position goes. But uh, speaking of fortitude, Tamara Leach has been in and out of the news and... I actually made a rant on our show uh, when she was arrested the second time that she is a political prisoner, and I will still stand by that opinion. What role did she play in the convoy? I mean, she was right there from the beginning. We know that she had tried setting up the GoFundMe account. Was she purely in finance, or was she the the leader that they were, they were looking for all along? So I, I think it depends who you ask. I, I mean, certainly her initial role was to be the social media coordinator and spokesperson. You had two people that have been running this thing in the early days, Chris Barber and Bridget Belton, who are both truckers themselves. They both had lives. They were driving. They were spending a lot of time on the road. And they did not have you know, media savvy. So Tamara Leach said, you know what? I've got some time. I'm at home. I can run your social media. I can set up a GoFundMe to buy some truckers some sandwiches. That was her, her initial goal. And she continued to do that and, and really become the the spokesperson or social media manager for the convoy earlier on and she did not and I, I spoke to her in Ottawa however many months ago now she did not know it was going to be as huge as it was she didn't know that her little $20,000 fundraising campaign would end up raising $10 million twice and result in financial account freezes of, of herself and others so she because of all the things the convoy went through became more than that fundraiser and, and, and organizer and she really became the spiritual leader to a lot of this movement certainly if you were to look at uh, those watching from home uh, and you know despite the fact that she wasn't a trucker she she everyone really liked her and everyone respected her and she has become the face of this and, and she was certainly an organizer she was not the only one it wasn't a one-woman show and, and in my experience she would be the the first one to say that okay yeah I mean she certainly did become the face of the convoy and I think uh the Trudeau government also sees her as a face of the convoy, which is why they're doing the best they can do to punish her for, for wrong thing, essentially. And I think that the convoy has embarrassed the government and they're making Tamara Leach pay for it. So now she's, uh, she's back in jail. She spent, I think it was 18 days behind bars before getting bail the first time around. And now uh, she's still in jail, is she not? Yeah, and, and she's actually spent almost twice as much time behind bars as the convoy spent in Ottawa, which is a, a juxtaposition that really makes you wonder. Yeah, it really does, and I feel awful for her. And uh, I don't think that she, well, could have saw this coming, but all I'm going to say is that somebody who is in prison awaiting trial for 
counseling to commit mischief, which is essentially me saying, hey, Andrew, why don't you go spray Trudeau sucks on that warehouse over there? And she spent more time behind bars awaiting bail than, well, people who commit some pretty heinous crimes. Yeah, it, it has really been a, an egregious display. And, and, and we were talking about Pat King earlier. I, I I'd said uh, on my show that I, I don't hold much... Uh, I don't I don't hold Pat King in much esteem. I don't think he contributes all that much. But the fact that he's been behind bars since February, I find equally absurd for, for no reason that anyone can really articulate. But what we're seeing right now is a very punitive state here that doesn't like how this convoy embarrassed it. Yeah, I think that's exactly what it is. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, very unfortunate. So, all right, the book is The Freedom Convoy. The Inside Story of Three Weeks That Shook the World, written by the inimitable Andrew Lawton. And you can find him at andrewlawton.ca. You can watch The Andrew Lawton Show on True North. How else can we get a hold of you, Andrew? Oh, I'm all over the place. AndrewLawton.substack.com, Andrew Lawton on Twitter. Basically, just type Andrew Lawton into anything, and I'll probably have some account there. All right. Sounds fantastic. Well, it was great meeting you today, Andrew. Next time you're in Saskatoon, look me up. We'll go for a steak and a beer, show you around town. All right, I'm thinking of that Corb Lund song, Running Back to Saskatoon, so I'll see you soon. (laughs) Sounds great. Well, thanks a lot for joining us, and great to meet you today.